Welcome to the 13th episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Agosa Asimoda, and I am the Senior Content Editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, Senior PR Editor Joe Vervalen interviews Jamie Pesson, the New York State Chapter Leader of Moms Demand Action, about post-Sandy Hook grassroots activism against gun violence in the United States and its impact on public policy. We hope you enjoy. Let's just start with introduction, your name, a little bit about your organization, and your history with it. Sure. Um, my name is Jamie Pesson, and I'm a founding member of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. We got started the day after the Sandy Hook shooting when a mom in Indiana started a Facebook page with the idea of saying, you know, what we need is a Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for the gun violence prevention movement. She really struck a chord, and chapters just started popping up all over the country. And like within a month after Sandy Hook, we held our first march ever here in um, Brooklyn, Across the Brooklyn Bridge, it was about a month after Sandy Hook, and over a thousand people came out in below freezing temperatures. Now we've got five million members with chapters in all 50 states. What is your organization's vision for gun policy in the United States? Yeah, I mean, if I can, I'm going to just step back and provide some context to that question, um, because our goal is to reduce the number of gun deaths in America. And before we talk about, you know, specific costs, it's really important to kind of explain the scope of the problem. So if you'll indulge me, uh, I'll share some numbers about this. Sure. Every day, 96 Americans are killed by guns. Our gun homicide rate is about seven times higher than that of our peer nations. We have around 38,000 gun deaths per year, and typically the number of gun injuries in a year is double the number of deaths. Having access to a gun is the number one risk factor for suicide. And just to give you like an idea of some community implications of what this means, um, there was a study recently in the Journal of Preventive Medicine that showed that 99% of Americans will know a gun violence victim in their lifetimes. And another interesting point is that American taxpayers pay nearly $13 million each day, each day to cover the cost of gun-related deaths can be met treatment, mental health care for traumatized victims and families and witnesses, legal fees, police investigations, security enhancements. We haven't even begun to figure out what it costs us as a society to have so many children traumatized by witnessing a shooting or by losing a loved one to a shooting or having a shooting take place in their school or even their community. So we don't even know what that will mean in 20 years when these kids are adults and what kind of factors that will have on mental health. So this is, you know, a real public health problem if you think about it. We're spending a lot of money on the after effects of gun violence, and my organization is trying to head that off at the past to say prevention is the key here, just in the same way we talk about prevention with early screening for cancer. Prevention is the key. So that is our goal, broadly speaking. From a policy perspective, our primary goal is to ensure background checks on all gun sales. A lot of people think this is already the law, and there is a law that says, you know, there should be background checks on gun sales, but there are these gaping loopholes that make it really easy for dangerous people to get their hands on weapons. For example, we have one loophole that makes it easy for felons and domestic abusers to buy guns at gun shows or through private sales. So, like, imagine going to the airport and having two security lines, one with metal detectors and one without and letting people pick which one they're going to go through. You know, while, you know, your average 
gun owner, your law-abiding gun owner may only encounter the experience of going to Walmart or Bass Pro Shops or Dick's and, you know, undergoing a background check at a federally licensed firearms dealer. There are a lot of other private sellers who you can also buy a gun from. Now, our, our laws in New York State prevent that, but around the country, that is not the case. Uh, we have a loophole that, that says that if the FBI can't complete a background check on a buyer within three business days, a store can still sell that person a gun with an incomplete background check. So that's how the shooter in the Charleston church shooting got his gun. One more example of a loophole that just defies common sense is that we have laws that say people convicted of domestic violence can't purchase guns, right? I think it's pretty baseline common sense that that it, you know, considering the rates of domestic, the affiliation between domestic violence and gun violence, sure, that is, you know, something generally agreed upon. However, we have loopholes that those laws only apply if the abuser is or was married to the victim or living with the victim or has a child with the victim. So that excludes an entire category of people like ex-boyfriends or stalkers that are legally allowed to buy guns. So our goals are to close those loopholes and ensure that we have background checks on every single purchase of a firearm in the United States. Something that upwards of 90% of Americans, by the way, agree that we should do. Even with all of these statistics and data you just gave me, there are still very well-coordinated interest groups and organizations that would largely describe themselves as being against gun control. What do you think is really driving their decision-making? I think that it's really important to make a distinction between the gun lobby and gun owners. That's the first thing I'll say. 97% of gun-owning households support background checks. So I want to be very clear that when, I, you know, when we're talking about those you know, well-coordinated efforts, we are talking about the upper echelons of the gun lobby and the people who are kind of running the show there. The NRA used to be an organization for sportsmen and hunters, but it has since turned into a lobbying group for and on behalf of gun manufacturers. The NRA takes tens of millions of dollars from the gun manufacturers, and their primary goal is to sell more guns. So every time we start talking about laws that would make it harder for people to buy guns, they oppose it. Every time we try to talk about laws that would make it harder to buy dangerous accessories like, for example, bump stocks, which were used in the Las Vegas shooting, they fight against it. And that's because that will restrict their sales. It's a very, very cynical worldview that really puts the profits of the gun manufacturers over the safety of our communities. And when your organization is doing its advocacy, what actions does it take to get the attention of politicians and other key stakeholders who influence gun policy? Sure. That's a really good question. We are known for showing up. <laughs> we have a reputation for being in the state houses in our, in our Red Moms Demand Action t-shirts all around the country. We are playing a long game. We know this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we're not just organizing marches, we're showing up every day at every state legislature, talking to our elected officials and testifying at, like, at legislative hearings. We're educating our neighbors about the importance of state safe storage and raising awareness about the epidemic of gun violence. I, I mentioned we have chapters in all 50 states, but that doesn't really tell you how broad our reach is. Just as an example, here in New York, you know, we have chapters in New York City and Long Island and Westchester, which nobody would necessarily be terribly surprised by that. But we have chapters in Ithaca and Syracuse and Binghamton and Rhinebeck and Buffalo. This is a common sense issue that really transcends 
political party or culture. And I think we can all agree that gun violence is bad for society. But what we're doing now is we're talking about what we can do to make our communities and families safer. And that means we're talking amongst ourselves, but we're also talking to the decision makers, to the legislators, both at the state house and at, at federal levels of government as well. And we're making it a key campaign issue as well. We are supporting gun sense candidates throughout the country who we know are committed to making sure we have stronger and more common sense laws. Moms Action is structured as a bottom-up grassroots network across all 50 states. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has this impacted your advocacy across the country at those local and state levels? We have neighbors talking to neighbors in communities around the state and around the country. And I think that that kind of person-to-person interaction really goes a long way in terms of coming to middle ground. As I mentioned, you know, we know that the vast majority of Americans support background checks, but they don't always realize that it's not currently the law. We know that the vast majority of responsible gun owners don't want their kids to get their hands on guns. So we're talking to our neighbors about the importance of keeping them locked and separate from ammunition in order to ensure that their young children or a teen, an impulsive teen doesn't get their hands on this gun. So from a grassroots perspective, it really is person to person and neighbor to neighbor. And we've grown tremendously using that approach. And I'll also put in a plug for volunteering because we are an organization made up of very dedicated volunteers. But one thing that I think is really cool about Moms Demand Action is that we have all these different entry points for how you can get involved. I mean, if you are willing to give an hour a week of your time, we have a job for you. If you're willing to give 20 hours a week of your time, Great, we got a job for you too. But the point is, we have all these different entry points for people to get involved in big ways and small ways, and they really add up to culture and ultimately political change. And earlier, you put a lot of emphasis on framing the issue of gun violence in the United States as an epidemic and as a public health issue. Sure. Why do you think this framing is important and how do you think it should impact how policymakers approach the issue of gun violence? That's another really great question. Gun violence is at a level at this point that we are talking about it rivals the number of deaths by car accidents. It rivals the number of deaths from breast cancer. Tens of thousands of people are dying each year from and hundreds of thousands injured. We tend as a society to look at science and research to say, how can we reduce this unnecessary death? And we do that for just about every issue we have. Car accidents are a really good example. Years ago, you know, when we started talking about seatbelt laws and drunk driving, there was opposition to that at first. Now we think of these things as just absolute no-brainers that people should wear seatbelts and that drunk driving is a bad idea and should be a crime. The way we found that was through science and research to figure out what would be the most effective. Now for years, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were hamstrung because Congress prohibited them from studying gun violence as a public health issue. It just This goes to show how politicized this issue became. That ban has been lifted, and what we at Moms Demand Action do is we really look at the science and research to figure out what would be the most effective ways to save the most lives, and that's why background checks are our number one issue. We know that background checks are the single most important thing we can do that will save the most lives. And it's just an added bonus that it's politically popular among Americans, if not among our legislators. 
on the subject of political popularity, there's a lot of talk about the increasing levels of political polarization in the United States. Has your organization's work been impacted by this polarization, or have you found that in practice the issue is much more bipartisan than people might be led to believe? I think this, uh, what you just said is exactly right. I think that this is a much more bipartisan issue than folks realize. There is polling that shows that a vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans support background checks on gun sales. Even a majority of NRA members support background checks on gun sales. This policy is really, it, it is not as uh, polarizing as as maybe some of our elected officials would like us to believe. We've seen some wins, I mean, some significant wins in places where you wouldn't expect it. Here at home in New York, which is not so surprising, but earlier this year, Governor Cuomo enacted legislation that would require people convicted of domestic abuse to turn over their firearms. But in January, Governor Chris Christie, a Republican, signed a ban on bump stocks into law in New Jersey. We defeated standard ground legislation in Utah. We defeated a plan to arm teachers in Tennessee. I mean, when you get down to, to brass tacks, it's really clear that this is not nearly as controversial as it seems. And for the first time, the gun lobby is finding that normal everyday Americans are standing up and saying, no, you don't speak for us. And once we use our voices and express that to our elected officials, both through conversations, also through voting, it becomes very clear that this, that gun violence prevention is a winning issue because most Americans understand that this saves lives. Wrapping up, where can listeners find out more about your organization? Sure. We really encourage people who are interested in becoming involved to text the word READY, R-E-A-D-Y, to the number 64433, and that will get you in touch with your local chapter. You can visit gunsensevoter.org before the election to find out who in your area at the state and federal level are strong on this issue. Again, that's gunsensevoter.org. Org. And you can also check out our websites, um, momsdemandaction.org and everytown.org. Everytown is our parent organization. And there's a lot of great information on both sites to learn more about who we are and what we do. And I always like to say this because even though we do have the name moms in our title, we always say that you don't have to be a mom to be a mom. We have people who are parents. We have people who are not. We have dads. We have aunts and uncles. We have friends. We have neighbors. So please, if you're concerned about this issue, uh, check us out. All right. Well, Thank you very much, Jamie, for talking with us today. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us again for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. If you are interested in receiving notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list on the CPR website. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter.